0: As we turn to the Gospel of John in this new series, very quickly it becomes evident that few books of the Bible are more deceptive than the Gospel of John. Few books in the Bible are more deceptive than the Gospel of John. Now that I have your attention, I will explain what I mean by few books more deceptive than the Gospel of John. When you read the book of John, and especially read it in the Greek text, the, the original Greek, it is the most basic Greek language that you can find. The, John is the gospel that every first-year seminary student or every, every undergrad Greek student begins with because it is the easiest to read and understand of any of the books of the New Testament. It is simple, ordinary, common man language it was the common ordinary greek language it was it does not come to us in the elaborate uh sophisticated greek of the philosophers uh or of the of the great rhetoricians and the great novelists like homer uh and and those who came before john this is the language of an ordinary common fisherman john he was a fisherman Basic grammar school Greek. And this is why it's deceptive. Because housed within this basic common Greek form trade language is perhaps the most profound theology in the entire Bible. John's prologue alone. in in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, displays some of the most profound theology and literary themes that we find in the entire Bible. So like the, the opening or the exposition of a symphony, the major themes of John are disclosed in this prologue in this profound and amazing way. And it serves as a, this grand introduction to a profound and amazing book that focuses on the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. So don't let simple words deceive you or a simple grammar of the, of the Greek language. To, get, to illustrate the, the, the profoundness and the sophistication of this book, I was doing structure work on this text, as any preacher or student of the word should do. When we talk about structure, we talk about figuring out okay, what's the pattern of this passage? How did the writer organize the material? What's the flow? And uh, as I teach some of the guys here in this room uh, how to do this, uh, that's the thing they start with. Okay, what's the structure of this text? How did the author organize the material? because the way it's organized reveals the emphasis of the text. As I was doing structure work this week, I found at least five different structures in this text, in this prologue alone, <laughs> laying out the themes. And I'll give them to you. This would be a good time maybe to have a whiteboard, but I'll, I'll just say them in brief verbally here. There, there's a structure that focuses on who are God's true people. And you have the word at the beginning of the text and the word at the end and then in the middle two paragraphs you have the witness and the reception to the witness there's also a structure that focuses on the incarnation and the in the flow the geographical flow where we have of time we have in the beginning was the word and then it moves the 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 true light was coming into the world and then the word became flesh so we have this this temporal and geographical flow structure. There's a structure that focuses on light and glory when light is mentioned uh, seven times in the first nine verses. Light, 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 light. And then reception of that light. And then parallel on the other end of the envelope is this theme of glory. There's also a focus on who is the true witness. You have the Word, and then you have John's witness And then you have Jesus' witness, and then the reception, and then you get it again, the Word, John's witness, Jesus' witness. And then you also have the bookends, or the top and tail of this passage, which deals with the deity of Christ. In the beginning of the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and at the end, the only God has made him known. This prologue is just elaborately put together in this majestic way. But the theme of all these structures really highlights one big idea, and that's what we're looking at this morning, which is the glory of the incarnation. The glory of the incarnation. What does incarnation mean? Uh, Incarnation means embodied in flesh. So embodied in flesh. You could say of somebody they are the living embodiment of love. That person is the living embodiment of grace or kindness or or something like that. It's 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 something that is embodied in flesh. And when we talk about the incarnation as Christians, it is the Son of God taking on human form and dwelling among us. And that's the glory that we will unpack this morning. So the question is, what is the glory of the Incarnation? That will be our grand question this morning. What is the glory of the Incarnation? And we will look at three things specifically to answer that question. Maybe to put it another way, what is the glory embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ? Christ. And we will look at three aspects of his glory in the incarnation this morning. The first aspect of his glory, number one, is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And we see this in verses 1 and 18. We see two aspects of that glory as Jesus is God. First and foremost, we read in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is, at the very outset of this gospel, called God. The Word was God. And likewise, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Then John says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is called God two times in this passage. He was God and he is God. John will pick up this theme in chapter 12. When John writes of Isaiah, and in this passage in John 12, John quotes Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, two huge Christological texts. Uh, In that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 53, the great servant, suffering servant passage, Isaiah says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And in John 12, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw the glory of the pre incarnate Jesus, Son of God. And first and foremost, the glory of Christ that John wants us to see is that Jesus is God. We also see in verses 1 and 18 just a hint of the glory of the trinity as a whole the glory of the trinity in verse one he was with god in verse 18 no one has ever seen god but the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known so we get hints of the trinity as well the glory of father son and Holy Spirit, which will be unpacked in John as well, the coming of the the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. John begins with the deity of Christ because it is central to Christianity itself. It's central to the life. That we are promised through faith in Him, and that if we don't know who Jesus is, we can't have life in His name. Jesus says, No one has the Father except, you know, no one comes to the Father except through Me. And He who has the Father has the Son, and He who does not have the Son does not have the Father. So we need to know who this Son is. And the doctrine of the deity of Christ has historically from the very dawn of the church to now, is the most fundamental issue on which Christianity rises and falls. So in the early church, it was the focus of the first four ecumenical creeds. The Apostles' Creed, which we cited this morning, focuses on the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, is what we confess. The Nicene Creed, focuses on jesus's divinity that he is god and it says in the nicene creed and we believe in one lord jesus christ the only begotten son of god begotten of the father before all worlds and jesus here is called god of god light of light very god of very god begotten not made being of one substance with the father in the early church fathers were fighting heresy within and, and without. And they are working hard to defend the glory of Christ from texts such as John chapter 1 and the rest of Scripture. The Chalcedonian Creed focuses on Jesus' nature as the God-man. How can God be God and man? Well, I mean, how does that work? Is he one person or is he two persons? Does he have one nature or two natures? And all these heresies are coming out of this debate. And in the Chalcedonian Creed, they say, we believe and confess our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father, according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood and all things like unto us without sin but they're emphasizing that Jesus is truly God he is God and he is the same substance with the father according to his divinity and that he's not uh, uh, as it were a mutation or a, there's not an intermingling of the human part in the divine part, that they are two uh, distinct, distinct parts in one man and one person. And this is the mystery of the incarnation. And the Athanasian Creed, the fourth of the great ecumenical creeds, focuses on monotheism. That is, we worship one God, not three gods. But then how do the persons of the Trinity work together? Because we don't worship three gods, we worship one God then how do Father, Son, and Spirit work together? And in that confession, they speak of each member of the Trinity, of their the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And there are not three uncreated, nor three un- incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one eternal incomprehensible and from the early church to today men and women rising up speaking twisted things have tried to twist and distort and mar the glory of christ that we are given in john chapter one whether it was the arians of the early church who said that jesus was the firstborn of god that jesus is a lesser god than god the father that he came after that he was created in time and in space or you have for example the gnostics who believed that the christ is is just a a spiritual knowledge that anybody can take on anyone can become christ and there's this inner light that we need to have we have we have a, a what like a knight's temple just right down here that still teaches that very heretical doctrine, just right down the street from us today. Or whether it be Islam that just merely teaches Jesus is a, is, is some, a prophet that we should listen to, but he is not God. He is not Allah. Or it's the Jehovah Witnesses who teach that Jesus was but an angel. Or the Mormons who teach that we can all become a God. The Mormons, of course, deny the the inerrancy of of our our Bible and say, well, you need to have other revelations. The Jehovah's Witnesses literally twist the words of of the Bible to say that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. So from the beginning of the church to now, men and women have sought to twist the truth, and to bring and diminish, uh, to diminish the glory of Christ as God, and we must stand firm in it. The entire Christian faith rises and falls on the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And if any of you that have went to university, uh, as, as almost certainly, or who grew up in uh, in far too many liberal churches, grew up hearing something like, "Well, we confess." the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history, and they divide those as two different things, that the Jesus of history was just merely a man, but we, the Christ of faith is true, and they do this philosophical move to try to divorce the Jesus who came to history and this Christ of faith that really becomes whatever anybody wants it to be. And you might get fed a load of hogwash from a, from a non-believing Bible teacher in university that says, well, everything that happened in the Bible, it's 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 true spiritually. But it didn't really happen. John gives us no room. Not only is he disclosing the glory of Christ, but he's also saying we were witnesses. We were historical witnesses of his glory and of his deity and of his grace. So I want to encourage you, beloved, to work hard to study the Word of God, to know it, to study church history, to study these apologetical points and these presuppositions that your non-believing neighbors and university friends are just assuming to be true because they've heard. And because most of Education today is not teaching you how to learn, but what to think. And they become social conditioning exercises. That you're just conditioned to believe whatever the powerful person in the room tells you to believe. But what happens when the heretic comes knocking on the door? I'm not going to be there. You know, Nobody else is going to be there. What will you do on that day? And what will you be able to say? Strive, uh, as as Peter says, to be able to give an account, a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. And it's not enough merely to come on the Lord's Day to hear from the, the expert, as it were, the guy who went to seminary. You need to study and know the word for yourselves so you can teach it to your children and to those around you and to stand firm yourself in the day of battle. So study to see and know and delight in the glories of your Savior and to defend his glory against the venom and forked tongues of heretics and hypocrites. So this is the first aspect of the glory of the incarnation that John shows us in the prologue. Secondly, John shows us that the glory of the incarnation is that Jesus is the true witness. Jesus is, is the true witness. And we see this in verses 1 and 4 and 9 and 14 and 17 and 18. It's all over uh, this prologue. In verses 1 and and 14, we learn that Jesus is the Logos. He's the Word. And John chooses to use a provocative uh, word to philosophers this idea of logos, this idea of reason, of, of mind, of of this, this thing that holds the universe together. And there's debates whether John is playing off of Plato and playing off of uh, other philosophers and then twisting their ideas and showing the truth, how Jesus actually fulfills what for them is a faint and twisted concept. That jesus is the logos the word he is the logic he is the logic the new testament uses this word logos in a number of ways uh, it can use it in respect to uh, preaching the word or speaking the word like in Acts 7 22, it says and moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the egyptians and he was mighty in his logos in his words and deeds he was mighty in his logos in his reasoning and in his speaking his writing ironically even though Moses didn't think he was when he approached the lord or uh, 1 Timothy 5:17 let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in logos in teaching and that logos is here translated as preaching those who labor in preaching and teaching. So I guess right now I'm doing logosing. I'm logosing right now, preaching. Uh, So the New Testament can also use this word logos in respect to special revelation. Uh, For example, in Mark 7, uh, where we read of the Pharisees who were thus making void the word of God, or in other words, they were making void the logos Of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So these Pharisees were making void the Logos of God by their man made traditions. And here the Word of God is referring to the Bible's special revelation. You can also use the New Testament also uses this word Logos in terms of the message the message of the gospel. For example, in Acts nineteen twenty, one of my favorite as as a preacher and church planter and ordinary means of grace guy who loves the word in all things here, it says, so the logos of the Lord or the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The logos of the Lord, the message, the gospel of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then, one fourth way I'll give you that the new testament uses it in terms of reason of the mind 1 Peter 3:15 in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a logos for a reason for the hope that is in you so logos is a loaded word in the new testament that has a lot of meanings Preaching, speaking, special revelation, the message, the reason. And in John chapter 1, God himself. God himself is the word. And thus he is the witness. You can't get a better witness to God than God himself. John also refers in respect to Jesus as the true witness, to Jesus as the light of men. And Jesus is referred to light seven times in verses 1 to 9. Light, light. You know, when you speak of someone that's not too smart, you say that the the light bulb's a little dim in that one. Or when you have an epiphany, the light went on. And all of a sudden I could see. The theme of creation is, is wound up in John 1, 2. And when we think about Jesus who let light shine out, who's spoken let light shine out of darkness, and to use Paul's words, has let light shine in our hearts to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This idea of light, of understanding the witness, and Jesus being that true light the light of men. Verse 14 and 17, John says that truth comes through Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And John in verses 17 and 18 makes this parallel between Moses and Jesus. Moses, of course, was the great witness of the Old Testament. The one who we saw in our scripture reading beheld for himself with his own eyes the glory of God. Even though he couldn't see his His face. And the Lord's glory passed before Moses. And in the revealing of that glory comes the definition of the Lord's name, of who He is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is what Yahweh means. What I am, what I am means. He's this Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but will not forgive those, the guilty, who do not repent and come to him. And Moses is shown in Exodus 33 and 34, the glory of the Lord And he's given the law of God for a second time and writes it down in the end of Exodus 34. And Moses is the great witness to the glory and to the will of God. And yet all Moses could give was the law. All he could give was the law. And we have hints of we need something more and we need something greater. We need even a greater witness than Moses. And John says we have that in the true witness, in Jesus Christ. Jesus as God makes God fully known. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus is the true witness. And as I mentioned last week, for thousands of years, philosophers have tried and failed to explain the basic questions of life. Why do we exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Where does love come from if we're just a bunch of molecules and material? What separates me and you from from this table if we're just matter? Philosophers have never been able to answer this question, and yet philosophers, just like the devil himself who accuses Jesus of being the devil which is a great trick of the devil. <laughs> Just call other people the devil. In the same way, philosophers accuse Christians of being close-minded, of being stupid, of being gullible. And yet, as one, uh, one Christian scholar said, philosophers are actually, and atheists specifically, are the closed minded fundamentalists who can't see beyond their own nose. What is staring them in the face? The truth. If you want to be a person of reason and of knowledge, you will find it in Jesus because he's the true witness who teaches us truth because he's God himself. God's children see clearly. I always found it interesting. Deborah would would share illustrations of this when she was a teacher. And... um, the topic of abortion would come up. Every child understands that it is evil to kill a child in its mother's womb. It's, the only, it's only the stupidity and stubbornness of growing men and women that can deny that reality. And when we become God's children by his will, as we'll read about here in John 1, we see truly we see with true knowledge and understand with true knowledge. Clarity in knowledge and truth comes through the true witness, Jesus Christ. So let's seek truth there. When you have a problem in life, go to the Word first and go to people who know the Word, not to what Oprah says or to what, I don't know, who the talk show hosts in Norway are. (laughs) Let's go to the Word and find truth and hope there. Find and develop a sound mind there. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, Therefore, because of the mercies of God in Christ, be transformed in the renewing of your mind. The Christian life is a life of being transformed in the renewing of our minds as we stare at the glory and grace of the true witness, Jesus. So John has shown us thus far that the glory of the Incarnation is that Jesus is God, is that Jesus is the true witness. And now, lastly, that Jesus is the only way to life. Jesus is the only way to life. And in verse 3, we read that Jesus is the creator. All things are made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And in verse 12, that he is our savior. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 4, and Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And we also learn that Jesus is the one who gives us the right to become children of God. That's something we don't hear preached too often. But look at it in verse Twelve, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This idea of children being born not of flesh, but of God is a huge theme in John In John chapter 6, Jesus will say, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And then in verse 65 of chapter 6, And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The only people that can come are the ones granted by the Father in whom the Lord takes and reveals himself to. John seventeen six in Jesus' high priestly prayer, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me outside John and in Matthew 11 Jesus says Matthew 11:27 All things have been handed over to me by the Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him So we also have this theme that Jesus is the only way to life And he's the only way to life for those that heaven sent to save. They were born not by the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And to illustrate this, no child, none of these beautiful children I see here this morning, chose to be born. You know, all y'all made decisions to have kids. The mom and the dad made the decision. And we know that even that's a gift from the Lord. But the mom and dad made the decision. The child did not decide to be conceived. And so is it for God's people. We did not decide to be born children of God. God birthed us. And as we will learn in this gospel, by the Spirit that blows where the Spirit wishes to go. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Our faith itself is a gift. And brothers and sisters, in this way and in closing, I say to you, we are saved by grace upon grace. 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 Upon grace, as John says in verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, because even our ability to be a child of God was something that was graciously given to us. And so in closing, friends, despite the fact that the gospel of John comes to us in this deceptively simple language, we discover the glory of God in ways more magnificent than almost anywhere else in the Christian scriptures. And this is the glory of the incarnation that from heaven, God came down to reveal himself to you, to make you a child of God, to save you from his wrath and to bring you into the heavenly glories of eternal life. And the rest of John's Gospel is nothing more than a full account of this wonderful theme. The glory of God made flesh, full of grace and truth for me and for you.